chapter 6. Dan. It is in the study group that communist leaders are formed. Period. There, comma, the potentialities of that individual are discovered, drawn out, and canalized. When they want to get their ideas across to a group of their own members, as a means of making these into cadres or of improving the quality of existing cadres, they use different methods. Through small study groups, they aim, one, to teach Marxism, two, to equip those who attend them to go into effective action for the cause, and three, in the process of teaching them to contribute to their training as leaders. So as I was reading this, I happened to realize that I've never read this with this in mind. Whenever we've talked about dedication and leadership, and specifically about using the discussion method to form leaders, we usually talk about it in the framework, in the reference of small group on small groups. Yeah. Creating leaders for the syndicate or creating leaders in our small groups who can then create more small groups. Okay, yeah, yeah. I had a thought today, and it's twisting my head around because it's something we've never, ever done. We've never even thought of doing. We don't do this at Banquet and Ball. We scratch our heads for most of a year trying to come up with new curriculum to teach the guys, and we don't do it the way the communists say to do it. To assign reading? <laughs> that is one of the things, yes. and It is a pretty big part of it. it. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. If these aims are to be achieved, it is important that the tutor should have them firmly fixed in his mind, both when he is preparing for and conducting a class. Each tutor is expected, as he prepares his notes, to ask himself the question, education for what? So that's the very first break in my argument that we might want to consider doing this in the banquet and ball. All right, well, well before we branch into this question, which Dan Dan is, is by chomping at the bit to do, we need to give a brief summation of the Banquet and Ball for the listener. So, who would like to do that? Dan, go ahead. The Banquet and Ball is a three-day event that usually occurs in late December or early January, and it has a bunch of curriculum about how to attend the Banquet and Ball, which is a formal dining and it culminates in a dance usually around midnight. And you are talking about the banquet and ball in reference to communist cadres. For what reason? What's the big deal about a little dance, apparently? So the things that go into the banquet and ball, you have to teach people a whole bunch of different etiquette. You have to teach people a whole bunch of different forms, and um, you have to teach people how to dance. And there are a couple of things that we get to put into as we've decided that they're important for teaching, like honoring people, like treating them as though they're valuable, and most importantly, is honoring the God who made them. And so we've created a synthesized curriculum that goes over all of those points. They teach people not only how to dine from the inside fork to the outside fork, or outside in, I'm not really sure which one it is, I'd have to attend a banquet a ball again. Not only do we teach them how to waltz and foxtrot, but we also teach them how to take themselves seriously, how to honor without coveting, that sort of thing. And it all comes back to who we hold to be sovereign, which is God Almighty. And so God Almighty has certain rules, and when we, when we follow those rules, our, posi our position is that life goes better. So some of those rules, some of those ethics are, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. And we get to unpack a few of those ideas in a three-day, in a very compressed curriculum in the, in that three-day period. And 
if you would like to get more information on that, um, you can go to season three of The Disgruntled Few. There is an episode called The Young Romantics, A Tale of the Syndicate Ball. And we <coughs> spend some time kind of walking through what what we do, what you know, what can happen at a banquet ball, I should say. What can happen at a banquet ball. And we go into this is the right fork to use. We don't mm-hmm. we don't necessarily talk about that in the in the podcast episode. Right. So the 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 minutia and, and the organization behind it all is not really what Dan is talking about here. But what is important to point out is that we decided that part of our curriculum is experiential education so while it is valuable to have a small group and do book reading terribly valuable frankly it is also valuable to do experiential education wherein you it it really comes out of dedication leadership's description of uh, the guided discussion if you like Mm -hmm. wherein people are allowed to have an opinion but you do guide the discussion a little bit you kind of keep it there's some boundaries here. They're pretty loose, but there are some boundaries here. And in the banquet room ball, the culmination of the banquet room ball, decisions are made and values are attached, wherein you'll have an experience, then you decide what that experience means. And this freedom um, is important. So I don't say, and uh, you know, we don't get to the end of the banquet room ball, and then I say, and all of this means X. You need to practice abstinence or you need to eat more broccoli or <laughs> you need to give me money or mm-hmm. whatever it is. And we don't do that. Instead, we, we, we build up to the event for three days. They have the event. And then what is most common in syndicate banquet balls is um, everybody goes home and we do not even do a debrief. We do not have, we don't purposely dominate the experience of the individuals as it relates to their value that they wind up attaching mm-hmm. that happens spontaneously and so if you attended a banquet ball if i hope i'm not losing you all in the weeds but this is an important point for me when it comes to this chapter people will read a thing what they need to get out of it is going to bubble up to the surface and as a christian i am persuaded the holy spirit is active in people's lives putting their putting his finger on things that really need healing or need growth or need transformation or need repentance mm-hmm. that the Holy Spirit is constantly moving that and you don't know what it's going to be you just don't know that's a really really good point and it's something that I am wrestling with because you brought up a question that I'm still struggling with you said you feel like the Holy Spirit has something to say and it's we're trusting the Holy Spirit because he, he is a person with an identity and a and we're trusting him to get the people where they need to go to bring them to repentance, to bring them to encouragement, to admonishment, whatever it might be. And that's where I'm actually struggling with this because the lead discussion doesn't really allow for that. The lead discussion brings them very, very carefully and almost in an underhanded way. I, I don't maintain that completely, but the group discussion that the communists did brought them eventually to the same exact place, well, well, same let, exact conclusion. Well, well let, me, let me point something out here. Yeah. He says at the end of that chapter that that there is most definitely elements of what they do that is not of God, basically. Uh-huh. He, he doesn't quite use that language. He uses the word democratic or democrat. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, they use methods that would horrify any democratically minded individual. Thank you, thank you. that's it. So I, I, should, I, I should tell a story about this. He, he spends time explaining how the communists do it, and then he goes on and he gives 
at the end of the chapter, he talks about what the Catholics could have done. Around uh-huh. a thing I'm really excited situation. about that part. All right. So I was in a couple of church organizations and one of them was a quasi denomination. And in this quasi denominations annual meeting called the fellowship of Christian leaders, Northwest conference, there was about six churches. I suspect maybe a little bit less give or take present. And they broke into discussion groups after they heard the speechification, if you like, <laughs> from from the grand poobah leader type. Mm-hmm. You could think of him as functioning as uh, semi-apostolic. And the semi-apostolic figurehead gave the speech, and then they broke into small groups in order to discuss application of dedication and leadership. This book. Uh-huh. So they sat in a group, and two domineering women... Mm-hmm took over the entire conversation and we spent an hour arguing about definitions. And when we got done, they said, all right, now we need action steps, which was never going to go anywhere because it was six different regions and six different towns. Uh huh. Right. And it was a small sampling from each of those was present there. And they're like, well, I don't want to do what this 55 year old woman who has done very little with her life but hogs the microphone and no one could tell her nothing you know we all know that type yeah they often play the piano at church (laughs) so so one of the things that i found to be true in my experience of that is that the church was so woefully inequipped Mm -hmm. to actually apply dedication and leadership in any way as it as as it appeared that that the imaginations of the individuals involved could not comprehend an actual way to do it. Now I'm I'm just telling you my experience of them. So here's someone who had taught dedication and leadership, whose husband was was one was a regional director of FCL. They were both really excited about dedication and leadership. Had been for years. Really saw it as the key. So what they what did they do? Where they had a ton of influence, what did they do? Well, they talked about it, mm-hmm. and then they talked tried to at you. Bro- yeah, they talked at you about it, and then they broke into a small group where a couple of mouthy people dominated the entire thing, and then everybody went home. The reason is there was no dedication. Right, and that isn't leadership. In the leadership <laughs> when it came down to actually doing it on a weekly, daily basis and mm-hmm. doing that regular interaction with those individuals. And I think this is an important point because when when I looked at dedication and leadership, there were this chapter was particularly difficult. Mm-hmm. Ditto. And what I found very quickly was I'm at a little church in Zilla. Okay, so I'm sitting there in this little church in Zilla and none of my family is going to be terribly impressed because I'm just Jared. You know, I'm just I'm just Jared. He's kind of a goofy guy and a bit of a screw up, which is legitimate. And they say we're not going to put Jared in charge until he proves himself. Right. And I had um, I was never going to prove myself. That's not how it works. So what wound up happening was I came to grips with the reality that nobody we weren't attracting anybody new at the time, and there was nobody to lead in a dedication leadership style. Because the contract, the unspoken contract when people attend church is I am not actually here to do anything. I am here for other reasons. And those may vary, but Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to come in and recruit 
Ruben Rios. I'm not allowed to come in and recruit Richard Globitz to come in and be in a small group. It's That's not why they're there. I don't really want to do that. And this br- brought forward something called point of contact. So I don't know what else to call it. And the point of contact is how do I take it out of the setting, the governmental structuring and all of the unspoken cultural agreements that go along with attending church on Sunday morning? How do I take it out of that so radically that I can do what I want? I get to redefine it. Because I couldn't even do that at work. I wasn't allowed to, hey, you want to join a small group so that we can try and take over the government? <laughs> no. We're, we're working at McDonald's together. I'm trying to do college. You're a weirdo. Go away. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm going to read the book. Okay. Of the three methods, two is the one which is regarded as the most useful where circumstances are right. It is when this method is used that the aim of developing qualities of leadership and drawing out the potentialities of those attending classes is most likely to be realized. And so this refutes my main point. The Banquet and Ball curriculum is not to develop qualities of leadership and draw out the potentialities of those attending the classes. That's not what the Banquet and Ball is for. This method isn't useful for that. It also somewhat highlights the fact that your experience proves they weren't interested in developing your leadership or drawing out your potentialities. They were interested in, this is what we have decided the churches need to do. We're going to draw you into a quote-unquote discussion-based group, which it was not a discussion-based group, because he's going to go on and he talks about the people who run this thing, the talkers, need to be shut up. Where you were, they said repeatedly, Jared has to, actually, everybody, everyone has to prove themselves before we'll give them any sort of leadership role. And that's completely contrary to what is going on here. Douglas Hyde's whole point is the communists were able to make leaders through this process. So as far as the whole discussion thing that did not work in Jared's case, I can identify that because I can think of very few times other than something that I'll get to a little bit later where whether it's at my old church or something like a work training or whatever it is when they're like, okay, everybody in a group and then talk about the thing and everybody's kind of like, yeah. And it's just weird. And just completely directionless. Well, it's like there's the people leading the, they they understand the value of that, Uh but they don't know how to communicate the value of it to other people and make everybody take it seriously. And that's probably where the dedication part is lacking. Like you said earlier, the people, they didn't have the, I think it was you said they didn't have the dedication. Well, they also didn't have the apparatus. When you look at the church, I think there's a legitimate point to be made that you have to qualify as an elder and then you have to qualify as a deacon. And honestly, the deacon bar is set really high as well. How are you supposed to develop leaders in a church where you don't delegate any authority to non-deacons and non-elders? No, no substantive authority. I just think that when you, when you trace back to the root, and this came up actually in dedication and leadership. He only mentions it in passing. I know, I made a note. But he says, secular mm-hmm. world. He says, secular world. And, and that is... That is anti-biblical. So there is no such thing as a secular world. There's just the world. And yeah. you're in it. And there's no sacred world. There's just the world. The two of them, that, that's a false delineation. And what it does is it enables... It enables... Double standards. Yeah. It, it, well, it enables sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is what it enables. And, and it's been embraced and it's been perpetuated because we get to semi-retire as pastors. You know, you know there's, a, there's a ton of competing commitments in the face of all of this. So even the people that I knew who didn't want to go back to work doing body work 
on their car, you know, as didn't want to keep doing body work in the shop. They didn't want to keep running a farm. They didn't want to keep doing these other things. They were pastors now. Hmm. Right. And I'm like, well, time out. It's not that I think that you should be working full time. I don't care about that. My, my thing is the elders in a city are elders. Here we are at dedication leadership. Let's talk about for one second, the, three ways that Douglas Hyde describes the communist teaching. Yeah. And and he, he forwards some ideas. The three most typical are lecture followed by questions, discussion or both. Number two is controlled discussion. And number three, question and answer method. I added a fourth, which isn't on here, and that is distinct, and that is um, experiential, experiential education. education, which I've already, which now I've just described. So I would say that there's four ways that we do it, and I would argue that experiential education is the quickest way. Yes, no. Experiential education is one of the most powerful ways because the revelation comes from within, and it comes from the Holy Spirit, and it comes from either yourself, a revelation that was hidden from you, or coming from direct revelation. So it's very, very powerful. It's also the most erratic. Agreed. And so... And this, people can choose to accept or mm-hmm. not. Yeah. I, I mean, that's true of every single yeah. truth and every single way of, of of presenting truth or of any information. That's it, that's not that's not what I'm going for. No. The problem... The, I don't know if it's a problem. The power is that we aren't in control of the revelation that people have. And that's very, very good for us. It's very good for when we do an experiential it's education. It's anti-communist. It is. It's extremely anti-communist. And this actually goes to the entire point, because if we are trying to develop leadership, we should do it the way the communists did. If we are trying to bring revelation, we don't have to do it the way the communists no, did. No, we don't. So there is a huge amount of homework that was done in these study groups that Douglas Hyde references. So there's a syllabus that's created, and the person who's attending the classes is grateful that somebody has gone through the effort of telling him what he ought to read. I made a note. I, I wish that Christians had created a bare-bones reading list for discipleship, evangelism, and church eldership. And so you said the church doesn't give away, or most churches don't give away substantive... Substantive authority. Yes, exactly what you said. And their their leadership is deacons and elders. I wish that our church, the, the church that I attend, had a syllabus, a reading list of, if you want to be in church leadership, you have to read these things. And church leadership can be almost anything. It, it shouldn't just be these things, but... The syllabus was created, the reading list was given out. People read the list, and then the higher-ups in Moscow determined these are the discussions that people need to be having. They would actually write out the questions, answer those questions, and then they would send those to the tutors, and the tutor's job was to think through every single chain of reasoning that they would bring up and boil it down to three points, which is really, really hard to do. And I include myself as the worst offender of this. I want to tell everybody my 50 points. I want to give them the major download, and it's I have to work on, okay, these are the three things I'm going to talk about. This, this, this. Yeah, you want, you want, to, you want to have them read moral education and moral imagination. As a for instance, uh, <laughs> I once gave a talk before a church, and the feedback that I got, I, had to, I was giving a talk on the Old Testament, and it was just a broad, this is why the Old Testament is relevant. And after I got done, it was a two-week series. After the first week, the feedback I got was, that was a fire hose, man. Like, 
there was way too much information because I had studied into it and I had notes and notes and notes and my first job was, and so I, I took that feedback and then I came back and I said, okay, these are the three, week two, these are the three reasons why the Old Testament is still relevant. And I was really frustrated because I had at least eight. But, so I'm, I'm the worst offender at this, but choosing three and then sticking with it demonstrates discipline and it, and it demonstrates a great deal of actual forethought. And so this whole section on leadership of if we wanted to develop cadres of leaders, we ought to do it the way the communists did. They were actually phenomenal at creating leaders. They could do it quickly, concisely, and consistently. consistently. Yes. Let's talk about the Bank of Nebo one more time because it, it, it has come up. We have to talk about the syndicate small group and how that differs from the communist small group. And then we need to talk about the, the small, small group. group on small groups and how that differentiates from some of the other things that have gone on here. So banquet and ball is option number four, and it's not just the banquet and ball, but it is the thing that comes to hand. Mm-hmm. Experiential education, can you just talk about the banquet and ball? Just take your time. Tell me about the banquet and ball. Go. What, what did you learn? Depends on the year, because every year I get something different out of it, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that I look forward to. Why is it that you reflecting? get something different every time? I don't know how it is for the men. It might be similar, but we usually have similar talks every year, kind of a core group of... of Precepts. Of, sure, or talks or wh- whoever, but they're given by a different person each year, which is cool because it's a different perspective. There's also different talks. One year we had a talk on solemnity given by Faith Odman, mm-hmm. and I'd never heard a talk about that before or since. And so that was really cool. But what does that mean? Of all the things you could have mentioned, you picked solemnity. You said it was a one time and you've never heard it before or anywhere. And that's one of the reasons you've never it pops heard it out. after. And it stands out because it was unique. Yeah. But I would also say you must have gotten something out of it. So I'm wondering what cha- do, do you recall what she taught on or any of that? Not super specifically. I don't think I personally learned anything new, but everything she said was something like, yeah, that, that I, I'm like up to terms with what she's talking about. But from the perspective of somebody who would be a first year listening to that talk, I think anything communicated to them the weight and the seriousness and the intentionality of the banquet and the ball. Okay, so what I take then is that you had that reemphasized by Faith's speech. Okay, yeah. Is that, is that inaccurate? No, that's, that's accurate. And going into the banquet and bowl, why is that important? You have to take it seriously, otherwise you might as well not go. You might as well just go to the Christmas dance. Okay. So one of the things that in order to build effective leaders, you have to have leaders that take themselves seriously. Yeah. And they need to see themselves for who they are in Christ, which is not babies. <laughs> Definitely not. They babies. need to see themselves as queens, not not princesses. And the men need to see themselves as a little bit dangerous, but taking themselves very, ter- almost terribly seriously. And and that there's a war in the culture against that. And we talk about the chicken exits, and we talk about the ways that we protect ourselves against ridicule. And in order for me to build leaders, I need people to basically have that experience. So every time that somebody goes to the bank on a ball, whether they like it or not, they experience solemnity, period. If they do not enter into that experience, grab onto it and integrate it into who they are, that is their decision and they are not leaders. And this 
kind of circles back around to an earlier chapter about human material. Mm-hmm. I am not persuaded that you can take any man and build him. I believe instead that you can nurture leadership or you can cultivate leadership, but you can't build it. It's not, we take the brick and we put it down and we put that on and now it works. That is not my experience of subcreating leadership. That brings me right into the point that that was well said very, very beautifully. Um, when he talks about the small group method of developing leaders, he says that one of the things that the, the small group leader does is first he uses the talkative people. The talkative people are extremely valuable in his opinion. You give them a question and they just run with it. They just go right off. And he says it doesn't even matter if they're right or wrong because they're going to spark controversy. And then once the leader looks at the group and he, when he's decided that they've had enough of the talker, he kind of shuts them down. He says, okay, what do you guys think of this? And then there's a whole bunch of discussion on, oh, this guy's right or oh, this guy's wrong. doesn't matter, but you got everyone talking. Yeah. And then he talks about the, the non-talker, the David Voris. I just love David <laughs> Voris. And he says, so again, this is to develop leaders. The first thing you have to do is you have to make them articulate. And with the talkers, what they have to learn how to do is to shut the hell up and actually think, because he talks about the fact that the talkers are often the worse thinkers than the than the silent ones. They're more facile, in his opinion. So he says, but the challenge with the non-talkers is getting them to talk. Obviously, this, this is a huge problem in the church. How do you get the people in the small group to talk? And what he says is he applies a little bit of underhanded means. He says, comrade, I can't help but notice that you're not contributing anything to our discussion. Is it possible that you have some doubts or some reservations that we could get past? And he says, this is really, really valuable. And there is no reason why Christians can't use this in leadership development. Because what he's doing is he's putting up a straw man. He said, oh, do you have some sort of doubts or concerns that we that we can help you through with, that we can help you with? And the non-talker can say no or yes or whatever he's going to say. And he, and I read this in a new way, but he said he assumes that they do have problems. And he talks about how helpful that is if, if they have doubts and concerns. But he doesn't talk about how handy it is if they don't. And the, the non-talker gets a chance to say, yeah, I, I agree. This, this does work. And we could use that. We could absolutely use that. And then he talks about how you can set it up as a, as a foil for doubts and concerns where you can so he says first and foremost where uh, he takes their non-belief as an issue that can easily be remedied and there's no reason why Christians can't handle that the exact same way when we talk to people who are you know clearly not on board with what we're saying we're like okay you have reservations I only believe in science all right excellent we can talk about that <laughs> I, I think we can reach a consensus or a place where Christ and science are 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 right there alongside, as somebody once said, I forget the, the, the wit said, the first sip of science will make you an atheist, but if you drink it down to its dregs, you'll find God. <laughs> so I, I actually do firmly believe that upon occasion, science can inoculate people against truth. But anyway, <clears throat> so he talks about the non-talkers and he says how important it is to make people articulate, and this is how you do it. You have to make the talkers listen and you have to make the non-talkers talk. So that reminds me of tying it back into what somebody mentioned earlier about he talks in the book about how the teacher has to be prepared 
how they have to wrestle through uh-huh. these things on their own. If you throw some, and yes, there's value in like throwing the new person into that and having them have to deal with it, but you need to do your research. Uh-huh. <laughs> I need to do my research and I don't, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why I don't have difficult conversations with people a lot. Cause I feel like a fool and I don't know my stuff. Well, to be fair, I used to know my stuff, but I don't anymore. So I forgot. Well, so, <laughs> okay. Well, hundred percent perfect recall is never going to, never going to work out. No. It may not even exist. I have studied this chapter several times. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that he gets really excited about, this is how you deal with mouthy people. But there's one paragraph in here. I have it underlined in red. <laughs> and it is the single most valuable thing I got out of this chapter. So I'm going to read it. On mine, it's page 74. But the communist tutor is expected to remind himself over and over again that he is not just concerned with passing on knowledge to people. His aim is to equip them for action Mm -hmm. and to assist them to become leaders. I'm going to read it one more time. His aim is to equip them for action and to assist them to become leaders. So when I did study groups with church people, they would do primarily Bible study. Mm -hmm. They might have, oh, action steps. Action step number one, who are you praying for? Action step number two. Keep praying for them. Keep on doing, uh, you know, who It's all internal focus. Right. Uh, I'm going to go and witness to him at church. Excellent. That's your action. Make sure to share the gospel at some point. Yeah, and and the action step thing was hard for me to wrap my imagination around how do I actually interface with culture? I mean, this was really hard for me. So I know that some people are like, yeah, 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 let's, let's skip this part. No, don't skip this part. We have to camp out here for a second because you got to cast yourself back into a former self, a pre-syndicate self, if you like. In a pre-Hopkins worldview, where you don't believe that everything glorifies God if you mean that it should, if there is no sin in it, right? Mm-hmm. This is footnote two. And I would strongly recommend that if you haven't gone back and listened to footnote two, you do so. In footnote two, Hopkins argues that, that you can glorify God by doing not just Bible studies. Imparting knowledge is not as valuable as everyone wants it to be. Mm-hmm. As I approach Christianity time and time again, they say, if you do not do Bible studies, then you're saying Bible studies are not valuable, and that is a heresy. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking in generalizations here, but it is a fact that I run up against that attitude. If I come along and say... Which is fallacious. Yeah, it is. But if I come along and I say, all right, I'm going to do a small group and we're going to study things and it's not going to be the Bible. What do we need to study in order to become effective leaders? And that begs the question, what's the goal? You know, where, where's your mountain? Where do you, if this group is acting as one and not acting in disparity, where you're going to go work on your project, you have your campaign, I have my campaign. No, we're working on a campaign together. This is fundamental. It reminds me, it might be a slight tangent, but yes, studying the Bible is deeply valuable, of course, but so many people, they don't act on it. This whole churchy mindset we've been talking about is like focusing on yourself and what you can you can get about it and deepening your relationship with God, but that's all they focus on. And it reminds me what I was reading in Biblical Law yesterday, 
in the ninth chapter, the ninth commandment, where he's talking about people get so hung up on moral purity. I have never told a lie in my life. Look at me. Aren't I so good? Well, that's just focusing on you and it's not really doing anything other than you're trying to check boxes or make yourself look good. I hold that Bible studies are very, very valuable as, you know, studying the Bible is always valuable, but I take your point. If you just focus on Bible studies and do nothing else, if you take no practical application from a Bible study, if you study the law and then go and immediately forget what kind of a man you are, then it's worthless. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I would never discourage someone from studying right. the Bible. My problem is, is if you approach the Bible as a download of information, then you are wasting your life. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to say this again because it is a very strong statement and I do feel strongly about it. If you're trying to acquire information, you're wasting your life. And if you think that you can have a vibrant relationship with Christ and it neglect works, I believe you are misguided. Or hellbound. Fear and trembling, fear and trembling. All you right. search the scriptures because you will find in them eternal life, but it is those that speak of me, Jesus Christ. Amen. So my first experience was that, I'll go over some of my hangups around this in a little bit, but what we wound up doing was Black Ops. Black Ops was our first small group. It was the first small group I ever ran. I basically gave a little 15 minutes, this is how the world works conversation, and then we practiced doing aerials. If I ever went over really 10 to 15 minutes, I lost the crowd. So I had to do it quick. It had to be on point. It had to be immediately relevant. Then when I was done doing that, we practiced the actual physical actions of aerials. That's flips and dips that are dangerous. And then from there, once we had finished and accomplished a goal as a team, and gelled and created an inner ring and established some kind of community and momentum, after that, I would say, I did my first study group, study group. I did not start with a study group. I started with not a study group. I don't even know what it was. A small group is what we're calling it. <laughs> then once we had our first study group, it was called small group on small groups. And it was specifically designed so that people could run a small group but if I was to stick with the dedication and leadership model, it would be called study group on small groups. So it was not a study group. Just, hey, pick a thing that you like. It was a study group so that you could specifically run a small group. And that is where we came across these ideas where I would say, all right, read the last chapter of this book. Read one chapter out of that book. Read one essay in this book. And, and these were the reading assignments. And then we would open up for discussion. The type of discussion that we did was right out of dedication and leadership. Agreed. I was in that first study group on small groups. And did you feel purposefully dominated? Oh, yes. Delightfully so. Delightfully so. Dan, coming from a place where you had experienced a great, a great many small groups where you studied the Bible and studied theology, and then you came into small group on small groups, could you contrast some of that for us? And also, could you give us an, your experience of it? The first and major contrast came up in a conversation around redeeming culture. And it was around the Elephant in the Room podcast. A bunch of pastors were gathered. Mediator would pose them a question, and then these, these pastors would hash it out. And one of the questions that they brought up was around a pastor who had had a worship band on Easter morning play Running with the Devil 
There was, was, I thought it was highway, highway to Hell. Yeah, it was Highway to Hell. You're right. Thank you. They were going to be doing Running with the Devil the next Easter. Anyway, and so they, they had this very long, I don't know, it was like an hour and 20-minute discussion on whether this was right, whether this was permissible, whether this was the best means, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We listened to this podcast, we shut it off, and then we had a lead discussion on this. And people started talking about how, no, this was wrong, this is clearly bad. There were other people who were talking about how, uh, you know, and then the conversation went on. And again, this conversation went on for about the equal length of the podcast that we just listened to. And I Which was long. Yeah. yeah and I, I, I made the following point. I said, C.S. Lewis said the following. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said that when he was an atheist, he read Jerome and he read Dante. And he largely agreed with Jerome at the time. Now that he's a Christian, he largely agrees with Dante, but he still finds reading Jerome profitable. That's the point that I made. I didn't say it quite that well. And then it sparks this conversation about redeeming culture, about whether we can, whether we should. And I and the conversation went back and forth, and in a fit of anger and almost fury, I said, if we can't redeem culture, what are we even doing? Now, now this is an important point to make because Mark Driscoll had said there's really three ways yes. to deal with culture. Right. You can either reject culture entirely, throw it away from you. You can accept it wholeheartedly and unjudgingly. Unfiltered, or, yeah. Yeah. Or you can reject, receive. Redeem. Or redeem. And you can try and take what the culture gives you, and then you can try and turn it to the glory of Christ. And then there was this conversation that revolved around this. And I said, if we can't redeem culture, what are we even doing here? So that's the first contrast with the study groups that I had attended beforehand. Now, now this was fundamental because the entire argument around it was that those were the only options. Right. The question of redeeming culture was never a part of the previous conversations. It was always a question of, so what did you get from this study on the book of First Chronicles? Oh, well, I, I got this. Cool. Who should we pray for this week? There was never a question of, how are we going to attempt to redeem culture? So that was the first contrast. And in this, in this theory, I said that if we can't redeem culture, what are we even doing here? But the subtext was, why are we wasting our time? If Jared took over, you, Jared, you took over, and you said, right, right, that's it. That's the thing. These guys all talk about rejecting culture, accepting culture, or redeeming culture. No one is talking about creating culture. They're not trying to create. Because the pastor that, that had his worship band run it, he says... My worship band is so good. They, they killed, it. killed it. They killed it. They were so good. Yeah. And and that's the point that you made. They said, if you had this band that really could, as you say, kill it, why wouldn't you create your own and new content and let the world react to you instead of reacting to the world? And that was the first aha moment for me. That was the place where I'm like, Right, because all of the power comes in making them react to you. It's the first rule in chess. You make your opponent react to your moves. You don't react to his. But that's all that I saw Christianity doing beforehand. Let's react to the world. What's the world doing today, and how are we going to react to that? Relevant magazine. What is the world going on, and how are we going to stay relevant in a changing world? Oh, my freaking gosh. How about change the world? <laughs> How about take over Amen. The world? Amen to that too. <laughs> so this was a this was a very stark compare and contrast for me. It was different for you because you signed up to make a difference. Make a difference. Mm -hmm. And whereas you're going to Bible study to be changed. All scripture is given by by inspiration of God and is profitable, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Bible study accomplishes all of those things. 
Bible study does not accomplish ending abortion. Bible study does not accomplish outlawing homosexuality. Bible study does not accomplish a just and fair government that upholds God's law. Anyway, I could talk about all of the injustices that are rampant in our society today. I could talk about the evils here and abroad. That's not my point. Bible study changes the man. Christ changes the culture. I'd like to be on the side of the king. I'd like to yeah. be about the king's work. I get to do both of them. Yeah. That's the there, is no, there, is no con- there is no conflict between those yeah, two. There is no secular and sacred. No. Yeah. All the world is the Lord's. The Amen. abundance thereof. Amen. All, All of it. The heavens, even the heavens above, are, belong to the, to the God above. I've, mu- I've mucked this one up. The heavens, <laughs> even the heavens, are the Lord above. But the earth he's given to the children of men. Ooh. Right. The Ooh. earth he's given to the children of men. Ooh, that's a tattoo. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. If, if all we have is faith, then unfortunately our faith is dead if we have not works. Amen. So, right. so you, you joined this thing, and that was the first, the first experience that you had was a podcast and then an open discussion, and mm-hmm. then everybody got really emotional about it. Very emotional. And Jared sat there and crossed his arms and let everybody get emotional about it. Very and, wired up. And I held my, I held my ace in, in, in my sleeve, and frankly, I was nervous uh-huh. because I'd never taught it before. And I had had this revelation, These they call it revelation, but I had my aha moment because everyone was was thinking. Wound up. Yeah, and they were really wound up about it. And there were two camps, mm-hmm. and they were trying to decide if playing Highway to Hell at the Easter service was sacrilegious and irre- irreverent or if it was clever. Yeah, revolutionary and powerful, impactful. And I... I'm, and and one of them was looking to polemics and 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 what is pious and what is to be set apart and whether or not the worship service should be exclusively to the glory of God, and then the other one was saying, "Hey man, all things are permissible." Yeah, and yeah, which is the exact same train of thought that the elephant in the room went. Somebody even said, "All things are permissible, but not all things." of benefit. And that's sort of where I remember saying, I'm not sure if I would do this, which is exactly the same, like saying we were having the same discussion we had just listened to. Yeah. Because the pastors were aligned in those same camps. They were, they were. And, and, and I, I was so mad when I first heard it and I had a hard time articulating it, but <laughs> I was so angry when I heard it. I remember I was on a long road trip and I, I listened to it and because Driscoll gets up there, he offers that, you know, these are the ways she deals with culture. And, there was no create. Mm-hmm. There was zero create in any of this. And and it was so disgusting to me and frustrating to me because this guy framed it. Everybody immediately took it because they all agreed. Yeah. They, that was already there for them. Creation, that is sub-creation, was an alien concept to every single one of these thought leaders. And these thought leaders at the time were the heavyweights in the Christian culture. Yeah, Matt Chandler, Perry Noble, Greg Laurie, Mark Driscoll. Yeah. There were a couple others. I don't recall all of their names, but yeah, they were all there, and and they they were the ones that they were the hot stuff. They were they were the Tim the Keller's face of their and day, the heart age. of of the resurging Calvinist movement. Uh huh. And he had like the biggest spiritual podcast or whatever. And anyway, I digress. So here are, here are the thought leaders, and zero of them are saying creator. And this was frustrating for me because I was just looking for somebody to help me out with these ideas. And, and everywhere I looked, people were like, here, come, come here, Jared. I'll help you understand things. And I started talking to him and zero 
zero understanding of, of creation, subcreation. Which you're going to have to unpack because you keep talking about creation, subcreation. God, so God, created, God the world created the world. And all that's in it. Amen. And then he put man in the garden and he said, here you go. A subcreation is something that I got from a Catholic named oh. uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, mm-hmm. who described the subcreation as like a pond. And he was referring to literature. And you dive into the pond and you take a look around and then you come back out of the pond. And your experience of of the subcreation, if you like, the literature would be the pond in this allegory. And when you come back out, you see the world differently. And this is an important point because when we create subcreations, we're not creating things. Mm-hmm. Like it's like Hopkins said. But two. men of genius are said to create a poem, a, a, poem, a, tune, a tune, a policy, a policy. Not the words themselves, and not the parchment that it's written upon, but the ideas. The ideas. And when we do that, then people people see the world through our subcreation. My experience of, of young people can be that they will read Winnie the Pooh and their experience of the life. world, yeah. of life, of people, of childhood is changed if they choose to embrace that. Their experience of the banquet and ball is changed if they choose to embrace that. That's the power of media. We call it media today. I don't know we're going to call it in 50 years or 100 years. But right now we're going to call it media this is the medium that we're experiencing the world through. It's where we're getting news. It's where we're forming opinions. But it's our imaginations, and we are taking our imaginations, and we're placing... And this is actually something that's incredible that you can do with art, and it's something you can only do with art. You can take your imagination and place it into the imagination of another person. And if they interact with it well, they will be changed, either for better or for worse. And that, that's, a, that's an incredible power that is at the hands of the Christians if they chose to use it. And we, and we talked about how in dedication leadership, it is requisite that a leader inspire. And that's actually what it means. If you want the, the literal definition of inspire, it means breathe into. So to circle back around to Dan, Dan, I was sitting there with this little ace in my sleeve and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to communicate this. Yeah, I'm interested. You were worried. You said Very, you were worried. I you were worried. worried that you would throw your ace out and we would all be like, no, that's stupid. <laughs> More, well, there were two things. The first and, and greatest was I wasn't sure that people would get emotional about the podcast. They but you listen. wanted them to. Yeah, so they would listen for a little bit and get bored. Okay. That was the first problem that I was worried about. So that by the time we started the discussion, I've often had this happen. They're like, I don't know. Well, it, I, it was I, interesting, I, I guess. sort of tuned out, but I'm going to pretend I did. I, I really liked the way Mark, Mark talked about his shoes. That was cool. Yeah, it was, he, he, I like his fohawk. Then there's the thing that I was also afraid of, which is when I asserted that Driscoll was wrong. <laughs> How dare you, essentially sir. what I'm doing. And at that time, asserting that Driscoll was wrong. Yeah, was that was controversial. Pretty, pretty bold. Yeah. Pretty bold move. So I come out and I whip it out and I say, creation. We have taught this many times since this moment, this watershed moment. And that is we have someone sit in a chair and we say, resist me, reject me. And I'm going to try to control you. And I take them by the hands, you know, interlock my fingers. And when I say, okay, reject me, they usually straighten out their arms. And, and their whole body goes rigid as they're sitting in this uh, An dining, office chair dining room chair. Yeah. Sure. So, so now I have control over them because they're rock solid. And I can like tip them back and I can move them around. I have control of them if I'm standing up. Mm-hmm. And I say, this is you rejecting culture. Who's in control? All right, now I want you to accept, accept culture, culture and, and not reject it, just receive it. All right, 
So receiving culture, you go completely jelly. And I'm still in control because I could still get up in your face and you have no ability to protect yourself. You can make them hit themselves. You yeah. can, yeah. Then there is the redeem culture where you're like trying to manipulate me and mm-hmm. you're like semi. And, and this one definitely is the closest thing to control that you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Because you're trying to manipulate me. You're not hard resistance, but you're not completely rolling over. And this is this is where I see conservatives 99% of the time. So they're trying to redeem culture. We'll play little clips from, from Braveheart. At the and beginning of to the a certain extent, it can be valuable. You can witness to people from Queen, from, from the rock band, the very, very secular rock band Queen. You can actually use that as a bridge to sharing the gospel. You can use culture. And we see this a lot. Of culture, this yeah. is what you were talking about, where they'll play clips from Braveheart. They'll play clips from um, Saving Private Ryan. They will they will use these things that people have created for their imagination, and then they'll say, see, isn't this, see how it felt when those guys went for Private Ryan and they tried to save him? That's like what Christ did when he came to save us. And to, and I'm not really trying to like downplay it. It can be, it can hey, be very I'm, stirring. I'm using swing dancing to yeah. convert people to Christianity. Yeah, and Hopkins says that we can enjoy all things to the glory of God as long as there is no sin in it. It will glorify him. That means we can use culture in this way. That's not wrong or bad. However... There is a better and more powerful way. And Jared. That can only be that you get up out of your chair mm-hmm. and you become the person everyone else has and to. And get in their face. Everyone else has to reject you. Everyone else has to receive you or everyone else has to manipulate you because you're the creator. Which is what they're doing to Tolkien. Tolkien created a beautiful subcreation that shows the glory of God. And even though he hated allegory, he filled it. He embedded it with his worldview, which is that God Almighty loves a fallen world and sent his son to die for it. And (laughs) I was reading a Facebook post where somebody was saying, oh my gosh, Tolkien wasn't Christian, or maybe he was Christian, but his work wasn't very Christian. And somebody said, then you were reading it wrong. And I just love that. Like, oh, you didn't understand it because it actually is. But that's my entire point. Almost 100 years on, we're reacting to Tolkien. And he's such a powerful sub-creator that there's nothing anyone can do about it. Yep. <laughs> well, you can wait until he dies, you can buy the rights, and then you can trample over his name. And make him more popular than ever. Sure. I do feel this way. Seldom is a true genius celebrated in his lifetime. And I think it's fascinating how these towering geniuses will come up and subcreate to the glory of God, knowingly, mm-hmm. to the glory of God. And no one can touch them. Yeah. And this is actually... No matter how hard they try. Right. And so Amazon Prime is trying to trample all over the legacy of Tolkien. And they may succeed for a time. But this is one of the cool things about literary taste and how to form it by Arnold Bennett. Because greatness will always persist and will be found again by passionate few later on. So Amazon Prime, they're talking about how they're going to turn the elves biracial and they're going to be bisexual and it's just going to be... I'm not even joking. It's going to have sex scenes like Game of Thrones. It sounds like it's going to be a train wreck, but let's assume for the moment that it's successful. In a hundred years, no one is going to be watching that Amazon Prime show. They're still going to be reading Tolkien. And passionately. Yeah. I have no problem with anything that's biracial. Elves aren't aren't biracial. Just so we're clear, all men are created equal, endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. You know the thing. You know the thing. (laughs) Page 83. 
Once again, the method necessitates an even greater preparation than the straight lecture or controlled discussion. This comes back to it. If the church wanted to create leaders, they would have to put in the work and do the greater preparation. Then comes this warning. A tutor needs to take great care, one, to get the right questions, two, to work out the answers to the questions before the class, three, to summarize the discussions using the student's contribution as far as possible. In fact, the education department very conveniently takes care of both the questions and the answers for him. The average tutor is a busy man, and I've underlined this. This is to my point. Here we go. Since the teaching of Marxism is surrounded by pitfalls, which include the possibility of teaching heresy, he is most likely to take all the questions just as they stand from his tutor's guide. Now, the first time I read this, the formation process, I was actually a little bit grieved by it, and I'm like, this is brainwashing, this is manipulation. They have all of the questions. They have all of the answers. They just lead people to arrive at the foregone conclusion. And then they use whatever snippets of feedback they got from the, from the people in the discussion to build this and say, oh yeah, Jared, remember how you said that all class is evil and how the proletariat or blah, blah, blah. That's exactly right. And then, so I was very offended by this section. However, I have read it again and I think that the church could easily adapt this method because the secular world, if you, if you don't mind me using that word, the secular world systems are evil and they are leading people to hell. The secular world is actually evil and leading people to hell. So once we get our mind wrapped around the fact that there are people who are dying and going to hell every day, our job, our commission, our command is to fight against that. I have zero problem with a group discussion on why homosexuality is a horrific evil that destroys people, lives, families, and civilizations, historically speaking. The church has the authority of scripture, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the express command from Christ why shouldn't we undermine the world's views? So this is the point. A lot of thought, he says, a lot of thought has gone into both questions and answers. Often the questions are framed in such a way as almost in passing to undermine the position hitherto held and accepted unquestioningly by the new recruit who has come to the party from some other section of the labor and socialist movement. So we have a bunch of people who have a whole bunch of whacked out ideas about sex, about love, about marriage, about death, about purpose and meaning. Why shouldn't we undermine those fallacies, those heresies? Why shouldn't we lead them in a group discussion for the glory of God that arrives at the place where actually Jesus Christ came and died for us and we should give our lives to him as a, as a mere pittance of what he's done? Why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we employ that? Why shouldn't we undermine the world's views through the small group discussion? Because it's not nice. <laughs> that it is not. And that brings me to the next section. My own experience on page 86 is that a kindly and decent attitude to students is one of the first demands on a tutor. Many comrades find things difficult. Many are diffident, are nervous at first in the field of study. I am for the most cooperative and comradely atmosphere and endeavor to listen patiently to what comrades have to say, even if you feel it is wrong. An effort to pick out from contributions what is good as well as what is bad, and to explain mistakes in the most comradely and helpful manner. In general, there's a very strong case for modesty on the side of tutors who often have less experience than those they're helping to study. I would say the church generally does this really well. Let's listen. We're not in judgment. But then he says, quote, 
Rough treatment should be reserved for those who are arrogant and intolerant to others in the course of the class or discussion. And I wrote, Amen, rough treatment. There is a place and a time. Gathering of stones. Amen. Now I'm going to skip to another part. Going to page 91. It will not incidentally be easy to persuade a worker, if the guide and mentor has done his job properly, that this is some sinister process of brainwashing. On the contrary, his reply, when such a charge is made, is likely to be, who else in this world ever showed so much interest in helping a poor so-and-so like me? Now, this is, this is the culmination of a point. It is that the communist tutor takes the time, if necessary, to sit next to them and go line by line. Now, I'll tell you what my experience is. Maybe this worked back then, but I'll tell you what my experience is right now, uh-huh. trying to sit next to somebody and go line by line with them. It is not good. <laughs> you come across as the most condescending punk that ever existed. And perhaps this is a shift in the culture. Perhaps it's just arrogance. Or perhaps it's just a heightened level of literacy that we're dealing with right now. Perhaps Could it, be. Perhaps Could it's be. a combination of all. I don't know. But let's talk about, for just a second, connecting with that worker. We'll call them that. But I'm, uh, someone that comes to mind is someone like Alex, someone like Luis, or someone like Phil. Okay, mm-hmm. Or someone like you. Did I sit down and go, okay, well, here's what this word means and here's what that word means and now I'm going to, like, no, you would not have taken to that. You, you would not have taken kindly to that. Now, this is my question for you and I would like you to just kind of take your time, marinate, you know, answer this question. How is it that the ideas that existed in this dance organization, which was based out of dedication and leadership, how were the ideas taught to you? I learned about the Matthew 18 process I guess that was the first thing that I learned. It was in the De Leon small group in 2016. Luis sat down and we we're all sitting cross-legged in a circle over by the arches in the grass. And he read Matthew 18 and he was like, this is what we're going to do if there's conflict. And there was in that mm-hmm. small group, there, there was. was a young man who was making sexual advances towards one of the young women and she had told him to stop and he was being a creeper and not. So we kicked him out of the group. And he was never seen again, <laughs> thankfully. And, and how did you feel about that? Well, it was scary to know that something like that had happened, but really great to know that it was dealt with. So why was it great to know you kicked out someone who, you know... Because I didn't have to feel concerned that, oh, we can't exclude people. We have to keep this creeper around. Yeah. Because that would be... I, I probably would have stopped going if that hadn't been enforced. Yeah. So first off, you joined a group in order to learn how to dance better. And then you sat in the grass and Luis de Leon read the Bible at you mm-hmm. and then said, and now we're going to do this. By the way, that chapter is Matthew chapter 18. Yep. So anybody that's listening can go turn to Matthew chapter 18. And then you had a guy that was, was getting handsy, getting gropey. Which small group was this? Uh, Bethany and Luis's. Okay. They never had a name. Luis said that they didn't earn one. <laughs> All right. Then we'll call them Bethany and Luisa's small group. That's what I call them. That was the first thing? Yeah. To my, Do you my re- memory. Can you remember a second thing? Banquet of ball. Tell me about the banquet of ball. What was your big aha at your first banquet of ball? Well, backing up a little bit, maybe it wasn't banquet of ball. It was probably a conversation I had with Leah. Hmm. And that first fall that Mario and I were dating, there came a point when like, Three times from three separate people in the same day, three people who were very important to me were like, Mario was bad and you should stop dating him. (laughs) Okay. 
Anyway, so that happened, and I was just feeling so torn and, like, pulled apart in every direction. And I would cry to Leah about it, and she was like, Kate, you should learn biblical law. She, well, she said... Well, how, how old how old were you at this I was time? 18. And, and Leah was, like, 20? 20, I don't know, she's, like, 21, I think. I think. Maybe 21, okay. Yeah. And so she's like, you should go to Jared and say, can you please teach me biblical law? And one of the people who was uh, telling me that I should stop dating Mario was my best friend at the time, who used to come to dance at the time, does not anymore. And and I told Leah, if I told my friend that I was getting all my ideas from Jared, then she wouldn't. She would immediately, because she she reacted very strongly to you naturally. So Leah says, you should go to Jared and ask him to teach you biblical law and that will give you that foundation that you need so that you can make up your own mind and you won't feel so pulled in all directions. And I looked at Leah and I said without skipping a beat, if I told my friend that I got my ideas from Jared, she would immediately discount everything that I told her. And Leah looked at me without skipping a beat and said, if she would do that, she's not a true friend. And I started crying because I knew, I knew it was true. And so I think I did ask you to teach me biblical law, even though I didn't quite know what to think of you at the time. Because why? Because I was a very haughty and sensitive-minded little weirdo. Oh, my. <laughs> um, okay, well, that that is really valuable. Now let's talk about the banquet of ball. Yeah. Now, your first banquet of ball was... Uh, was that same year? Well, the, the end of that same year. Was, was that, that wasn't the fireball, was it? No, the what, ball. It, it was a fireball. Oh, your first was the, f- the fireball. Yeah. Okay. I just remember I was very excited because Leah was like so excited that I was going to banquet and ball and like we were trying on dresses and doing it. It was, it was a lot of fun. And Mandy McCown as well. But like we were looking at dresses and like, oh, you're going to go to banquet and ball. This is going to be so fun. And I was so excited because I'd wanted to go the year before because that was one of the things mentioned in the small group. And then I didn't end up going. <laughs> mm, my gosh, the tangent. So what did silly. what did you what did you learn? I learned what honor was, and although I could not have put it into words, and probably still can't, the pieces started coming together. Okay, well, we're gonna shift gears hard, and thank you very much for that, Kate. Thank you. We need to talk about government. So the next section is it ties really closely to the five points of covenant theology, which I think are important to go over. So the five points of covenant theology are sovereignty, who is in charge, authority. Sovereignty is who is in charge. Authority is where do you derive your authority from. It's delegated authority. It's why are you in charge. The next one is ethics. What do you do when you're in charge? What's good and what's bad? Sanctions are what you apply when people have done something bad. And then the last one is continuity, which is how do you keep the good things going on from generation to generation. It's how do you teach your children to uphold the law of God and to revere him in their minds and in their hearts. So you have to understand those five points, otherwise this is not going to make any sense. So on page 84, Douglas Hyde talks about the Marxist definition of the state, and they do a little bit of a bait and switch where they take some ideas that people are comfortable with. They say, it is, of course, quite wrong to suppose that the state is neutral and above classes. The state is and must always be so long as classes continue a weapon of the ruling class. So right off the bat, he says, the state is a weapon of the ruling class. In fact, he goes on to say, the state is a weapon of the ruling class to perpetuate the existing social system and to crush those who would make an end of it, end quote. 
So right off the bat, we see how the Marxists view government. They view the government as a way to perpetuate Marxism and to crush those who will oppose it. Now so, think of this through the filter of BLM. Yeah, actually, I'm applying this to all of our current events. That's what uh, I was I'm talking about AOC. Annoying. I'm talking about every progressive movement that is at its heart a Marxist foundation. They view government as a self-perpetuating system of oppression is what they actually view government. So it is, of course, quite wrong to suppose that the state is neutral. Now, here's what's interesting is what is the definition of the state? Well, what I came up with is that the state is any law order set up to regulate people's behavior. That's a very rough and dirty definition, in my opinion. It's any law order set up to regulate anything, most specifically people's behavior. But his point is that the state is never neutral. And I think that's actually true. So I'm having this conversation with Grady Hauger. He, he's a really cool and intelligent guy. And I posed him the question of, is the state neutral? And what is the state's ideal? And what is the state supposed to do? And what does it do? And he said, well, the, whatever the state's ideals are, they, they usually fall short, far short of them. So I think that Christians need to understand that the state is never neutral. I think the Marxists were actually correct on this. The state is not neutral. The state is not a neutral arbiter between truth. Because... That was something that he said, well, you know, it's an arbitrator. It's an arbitrator. And I said, okay, who, what is it arbitrating and who is it arbitrating between? Because unfortunately, that's the way that that word works. You can't arbitrate something unless there are two other parties. So we like to view, we, me, I like to view the government as an impartial party that's just here to make sure that everyone has truth and justice for all. And unfortunately, while I do hold we hold these things to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are imbued by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The founding fathers set up the state to do the minimum required to let people have their own lives. However, whatever ethics the state subsidizes or prohibits shows ultimately where it derives its authority from and who or what is ultimately sovereign in the mind or minds of the ruling entity. And that's actually really, really key because all of the ethics that we say this is good or this is bad should reflect our creator because God said, this is right, this is wrong. Do these things and you shall live, do them not and you shall die, which is a both end, which is both do these things and it will not profit you and you will end up dying and also these things are worthy of death and God will kill you or men who are enacting God's justice should kill that's an argument for the, the death penalty. But whatever the ethics are, show what is enshrined as the highest good. And unfortunately, secular humanism has enshrined, quote unquote, human life as the highest good. And unfortunately, that's not even true because it's not human life. It's themselves that is enshrined as the highest good because babies aren't apparently alive enough to protect. They're not human. And their disdain for the elderly is another case that clearly their ethics indicate that what is sovereign is not God most high. So that's a point that I have to bring up around covenant theology. Your ethics will always point back to who is ultimately, who you ultimately view as in charge. And continuity is what you're passing on. And unfortunately, if you're passing on evil fruit, evil fruit is going to continually grow. I think Christians need to let go of the idea that the state is fair and neutral. It isn't, and I don't think it should be. I think the state ought to say, God says that this is good and God says this is bad. Our job is to execute judgment and that's it. 
Which Daniel is Ives. another thing that people get hung up on because they're like, no, people can make their own decisions. They well, can. Yeah. They absolutely can. Oh, this country is free. Yeah, but. But some of your yeah. decisions are going to end up running you off a cliff <laughs> or yeah. running you into jail or running you into a government that will kill you and should kill you. Yep. What I wasn't going to say is that the five points of covenant that I first learned about in biblical law class last summer, whenever that was, was another one of those super eye-opening, big-picture moments for me. And I didn't even remember that it was the five points of covenant. I just remember Jared drawing this arrow thing on the board, and then ethics was at the point of the arrow, and there were other things, which now I remember that they were the five points of covenant. And Jared's talking about when I say, we are a Christian organization, I'm going to pray, da 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 I'm enacting these things. And I had this sudden moment of like, oh! <gasps> Oh my gosh, it came all the way back to the beginning. Uh-huh. And it was really cool. Right, because your first <laughs> it was experience really cool. Because your first experience of ethics was Matthew 18, which is God's ethics, which is this is how to handle conflict. By your own testimony, that was one of the main things that got through to you was this is what they say, this is what they believe, and this is what they do in light of what they've said and what they believe. And so it's not enough to say Jesus says that when you have a problem with somebody, you need to go to them and tell them. That's not enough. Because if that's all you do, then unfortunately, you have failed to apply the Matthew 18 process. You have not done what Jesus said to do. Because what he said was, if they repent, great. And if they don't, then you go and find one or two witnesses, and you bring them and you say, hey, knock it the hell off. (laughs) And then if they repent, great. And if they will not, then you take them before the assembly, and then you say, hey, jackass, (laughs) knock it the hell off. And then if they don't repent, you excommunicate them. Like, the Catholics understand excommunication. They don't necessarily understand the Matthew 18 process, but they got the excommunication (laughs) real good. (laughs) They do. They don't do it as much as they should, but yeah. Right. I can think of at least one person in prominence who should be excommunicated. Definitely. He should not be getting communion, and he should not be allowed in the building. In any case, ethics point back to your sovereign, but what the interesting thing is that Jared writes it as an arrow. He does it as a V-formation And he says that ethics are what pierce culture. Yep. And ethics are what come in conflict with every other form of ethics. Because if I say murder is wrong, and you say, well, murder is just his idea. If I say, actually, murder carries a death sentence, you say, well, murder is not great, clearly, but it's not worth killing the guy over. Then our ethics conflict. (laughs) So... You said something that I hardly agree with, which is the importance of ethics. Ethics should be in line with sovereignty. It should point back to sovereignty. Otherwise, it's going to be all skewed, and your babies are going to get inbred, and abominations are going to start getting (laughs) cats marrying dogs. Okay, this is getting drastic. (laughs) It is, but actually, unfortunately, where we are right now, uh, this culture has shifted enough, and this is actually directly to my next point. In the 1960s, the Vatican Church changed a bunch of rules that they had around some of their dietary restrictions and various things like that. And there was kind of an about face, and there was a church scramble, and he says, if the communists were confronted with a similar situation, and if the church was the Communist Party, then the Catholic hierarchy of any particular country would immediately appoint a commission of the best brains to determine how all this might be explained to the whole of the faithful, providing them with the fullest and deepest possible understanding of what was being done and the reasons for it. So, unfortunately, in my analogy, I was talking about incest, which is now being 
accepted by the culture. It's actually being pushed to accept it. So I said, heresies and divisions within the church abound today, specifically around the issue of homosexuality. Yet most churches are mute on these issues. What is the church's response to homosexuality? Now I can tell you what the Bible says about homosexuality. I cannot tell you what my church views as homosexuality because it doesn't come up. But here's the most important thing. When you read down this section, um, the classes would be, sorry, classes would be organized within every organization in the church with the tutors first doing special courses at which the method of presentation would be discussed as well as the content of what was going to be taught. Someone would be responsible for listing the required reading, and this would be cut down to an absolute minimum. The study courses would be aimed at every group within the church from the least educated to the most highly, from the Ross new convert to the professor of theology, this part is underlined. When the classes were held, priests would learn how their work would be affected by the various Vatican Council decrees and how this might be got over to the people through the pulpit in instruction classes and in normal pastoral activities. So, there is a synod of the Pentecostal Church that is meeting in America today. And part of the segment of the Pentecostals are talking about homosexuality and same-sex attraction and desires for gay sex are brokenness but not necessarily sin, according to one of the factions. This is according to a, an article that I was reading today. So, uh, unfortunately, no church hierarchy has assembled a systematic response to homosexuality in the church. Kate, what is your church's position on how you personally should relate to homosexuals in your community? There isn't one, but I know how I relate. Sure! And you have come to this conclusion by reading the Bible. However, the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. It also says to love your enemies. So you're going to have to figure out what that looks like as you relate to the homosexuals in your life. I hope that you relate to them with love. It also related to me not attending my sister-in-law's wedding. <sighs> That's unfortunate. Right. But that was your personal revelation I, I mean, I hate to say that because there is clear doctrinal biblical teaching on homosexuality and our response to sin. But you weren't taught that by a pastor. You had to walk that line yourself. And that's a contrast with the communists. The communists said, this is the situation. And it basically da -da 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 files all the way down through the, out the entire organization. And then they have a canned response that just pops out at the end of a, it's like a tube or something. You open it up like a fortune cookie and it says, this is how you're going to relate to this issue. That's obviously not great, but I do wish that our churches had actual responses to, this isn't brokenness. This is sin. Thank you, Dan. That's pretty good. Pretty good stuff. And not because we couldn't talk about more, because we could. Oh, so much more. But we do need to talk about this last little bit. And what we have seen of communist education and tutorial methods, it will be clear that there is much that the non-communist, and particularly the Christian, may not copy. Yep. There is much in it that will, quite properly, be an affront to the minds of any Democrat. But there is much also from which others might learn. This is particularly true of the communist's attitude. It's italicized. This is particularly true of the communists' attitude to the question of study and formation yep. and their recognition that those who would serve a cause must establish a unity of theory and practice in their own lives. 
It is here that the non-communists tend most often to be at their weakest. It is assuredly where the communists have their greatest strength. Now, and as we've we built out the syndicate, we taught people how to dance. It was basically, you show up to a dance. If you want to learn how to dance more better, -er, then you join a small group. The small group is run by a guy. And if you have a really good time and you, you learn certain rules, you apply those ethics in your life, and then you go your happy way. But if you want to keep plugged into the community and learn more and hang out with these people, then that is ultimately how we wind up evangelizing. Now, this is different than the communist method. Yep. And the reason is not because I don't like the communist method, but at that period of time, I could not get anyone to talk about any of the stuff I wanted to talk about. I met Dan at a Valentine's Day dance. If there was no dancing, I would have never met Dan. Mm -hmm. Period. That's all there was to it. Because Jeff is the one that dragged Dan there. False. I dragged Jeff. You dragged Jeff. Yep. And I got to know Jeff a little bit and so on and so forth. But but as things stand right now, my point was that the point of contact was not, hey, I would like, you know, I'm not at work trying to recruit people who are in the union. And I had to find it creative ways to create that point of contact in order to bring that in. I, I became persuaded that people listen to their friends and talk about things with their friends. They don't talk about things with the guy at church. They don't talk about it and with their youth group leader. This was my experience. I'm not saying nobody's this way or there aren't exceptions. So let's get over those ridiculous things. My experience is the people that you're actually hanging out with are the people that are forming your worldview. That as you're working it out, they're there with you. Doing it too, usually. So your experience was Luis and Leah and and so on. So it wasn't necessarily that Jared came in and taught you all. No, that's not how that works. It's really not how that works. How it works is you create this community, which is not mentioned, right? You know, it's not mentioned in this chapter. He's not talking about the community in this chapter, but there is a community there that is the study group itself. But the expectation is that they're leaning into doing things together and then they wind up establishing relationships. And we've seen this now with the syndicates. People will leave the syndicates. They'll go do other things because that's what you're trained to do. We've discussed this earlier in, in, in other podcasts. But they do eventually wind up kind of circling around to the relationships. I mean, you see it again and again. Sometimes they'll go out and like get married, get divorced. Then they wind up kind of coming back around a few more times and they go off and they come back around. It winds up being this big circle that winds up being this retread as people are living life because this is a touchstone for people. And that's, that's is an element that really does show up in my small groups you have to be friends now at some point we will go over everything that goes into how the syndicate ran small groups which is still flawed still needs to grow still needs to change but it is not outlined in a step-by-step -step in dedication and leadership but what is spoken to in dedication and leadership in broad in broad sweeps is what we're trying to implement and I'm delighted that so much, first time I read this, none of this, I had any hands-on experience. Now people read this and they go, oh, that's what we've been doing. <laughs> and that brings me joy. That's Control what discussion, biblical yeah. law class. Biblical law class, control discussion. All right, and I don't start with biblical law. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you usually start with Matthew 18. That seems to be a major touchstone. 
really does. All right, I'm going to pray. God, thank you so much for the romance you brought to us. In Jesus' name, amen. you made it to the end of chapter six you listened to my podcast thank you thank you for doing that thank you thank you for spending the time on this if you made it to the very end then you're looking for some little cute little easter egg which still might be in here somewhere i don't know it's up to the editor but want to tell you something that's coming up january 15th uh of 2022 will be our first annual convention. This convention is going to be a blast. It's going to happen in Yakima. It will happen for exactly one day. We'll start in the morning and we will end in the dead of night. Now this activity that we are going to be participating in, this convention is going to have a very simple and straightforward presentation and it's going to be easy to consume. And all you have to do is uh, get invited. If you are a Patreon subscriber or you donate to me via Patreon to this work, um, you're on the invite list and we'll be reaching out to you. If you've contributed a significant amount of money in the past but aren't currently subscribed, it's possible that I'll reach out to you. If uh, I don't reach out to you and you have given significantly, it's possible that I haven't gotten around to reaching out to you, in which case, feel free to shoot me a text if you have my phone number. If you don't have my phone number, then we're not really that close and uh, you're not on the list. And the last point I want to make about this coming convention, convention is that your expectations should be reasonably low. So keep it nice and depressing. Thanks for noticing. I want to go back to the infomercial for Blandies. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Give us another Blandies infomercial, then. It was too bland. Jared yeah. is disappointed. You will never be the same. Not. <laughs> feel. You'll never feel the same. You'll never feel the same. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Dan. Blandies for the romance in your life. <laughs> you will never remember. For the romance you'll never remember. Blandies. <laughs> 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 <laughs>